Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. I am your host, Bill Scher. Today we are talking about the election of 1968 and the new book, The Men and the Moment by uh, Aram Gudzuzian. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Thrilled to be here. Uh, you are a professor uh, from the University of Memphis. This is your fifth book, correct? Or your sixth? Fifth. Fifth book, uh, last book being Down to the Crossroads about civil rights. Um, and so the election of 1968 uh, had a lot to do with the direction of civil rights uh, in this country. Uh, what What is it that compels you to write about this particular election? Uh, well, I think if you're going to write about any election that helps to explain, to some degree, how we got to where we are today, uh, 1968 is a great starting point. Uh, it is an election that in many ways explains to me the identities of the two parties as we know them today, the Democrats as a more uniformly liberal party and the Republicans as a more uniform, uniformly conservative one. Uh, but as a historian, as a storyteller, 1968 is also exceptionally appealing because for two reasons. One, the incredible characters, uh, you know, everyone from LBJ and Nixon to Bobby Kennedy and Eugene McCarthy and Nelson Rockefeller and Ronald Reagan and, of course, George Wallace. And the other is the incredible backdrop. Uh, you know, 1968 is a year of great political and social and cultural chaos uh, in the United States and around the world. Uh, it's the year of the Tet Offensive, the year of uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King and the accompanying urban violence, uh, radical students sitting in at Columbia University, the violence at the Democratic National Convention. Uh, and these are all big events that really shape uh, the election and, the, and thus the future of American politics. And now in this book, you go uh, one by one through each of these people mm-hmm. uh, before they all you know, come together in the uh, glorious chaos with, with how the election ended. Um, is there one figure in particular that you f- found to be a particularly captivating figure or a figure that you um, learned something surprising about along the way? Um, I would say with each of them, I was captivated in, in my own way. I really tried to take each of the eight main characters in this story, you know, the eight different candidates on their own terms. I tried to tell a little story about them in terms of a, a biographical summary or tidbit uh, and to try to get out a sense of each of their personalities. Uh, so I started with Lyndon Johnson, uh, who, of course, famously chose not to run uh, ultimately in the presidential election in 68. Uh, but his decision to not run really set the parameters through which every other candidate operated. And of course, LBJ is, is a character that biographers have written doorstop biographies of, uh, and he's a, such a titanic figure and this, and this massive looming presence over the 1960s. Uh, and the same, of course, is true of Richard Nixon, who ultimately wins the election. Uh, and really all of the figures that I've written about have been the subject of, of fairly rigorous academic treatments. Uh, what I tried to do in my book is to weave them all together into one story and into a really short and engaging narrative. Uh, so, are the, do you find a lot of parallels with our pretty raucous politics today, with the same with with the raucous politics that were 
very evident in 1968. Mm -hmm. um, and if you want to think about Sugar Sword of the broader political backdrop, in some ways, 1968 was even more chaotic than, than uh, the time we live in today. Well, on the other hand, uh, what, all, what all of the candidates in the mainstream parties shared, both Republican and Democrat in 1968, was a basic um, faith in the, in the larger American democratic process in one way or another, a, a reliance on the, on the core institutions of American life uh, in a way that you know, the current occupant of the White House doesn't seem to. Uh, so in that way, I think our, our political system is more fractured in some ways in, uh, from 2016 on, uh, even as are the larger social fabric is not as is not as uh, chaotic as it was. Now you you have a chapter on George Wallace, uh, who uh, some have noted was sort of a proto Trump. You can kind of draw a line from uh, you know George Wallace to uh, Pat Buchanan to to Trump today, and the kind of uh, you know, d divisive populist uh, politics that they that they push. Um, but in 1968, Wallace was a disaffected Democrat, even though uh, we say we think of the Democrats as being the embodiment of the Civil Rights Party, but Wallace showed that there was a healthy faction of Democrats who were increasingly disaffected in the wake of uh, LBJ signing the uh, Civil Rights Act. So uh, that was sort of showing us that the, the tectonic plates of the parties were changing. Um, is there anything... Uh, similar to that going on today, do you think the parties today uh, are in a similarly unsettled place, or is that something that makes 1968 more distinctive? Mm. Uh, to go back to Wallace and to 68, I think you're you're absolutely right in that George Wallace is kind of this critical hinge figure in American politics, right? He's he's a Southern Democrat uh, who is, as governor of Alabama, of course, uh, uh, identified with the Democratic Party, historically the party of the White South. Um, but he's also running as an independent in 1968. And as you talked about in terms of sort of a proto-Trump, right? he, uh, in many ways, Trump's campaign mirrors many aspects of Wallace's campaign. Wallace ran a, ran a much more sort of intrinsically grassroots campaign, uh, but, but, but Trump's sort of improvisational style, the violence that infected his rallies, uh, the, the way that he called out elites, uh, sort of this, this notion of a populist conservatism that's gaining so much attention now. Wallace is really the first figure to articulate that on a national scale and to bring it in, into the national political arena, running as an independent in 68. And he's and the reason that he becomes this hinge figure is, you know, though he never identifies as a Republican, he is the most influential person in some ways on the future of the Republican Party, right? Richard Nixon wants those Wallace votes uh, in 68, but particularly by 1972. And then sort of the, the, the way that the Republican Party shifts from sort of the doctrine of more traditional conservatism, which might include, uh, you know, limited government spending and a strong national defense, uh, notions of individual responsibility. Uh, it's also absorbing Wallace's more angry populist conservatism, uh, and, and that helps to drive its sort of more cultural turn by the 1970s and helps to explain the rise of Ronald Reagan in 1980. Um, is, is there a figure like Wallace Today, I think I think you know the Trump might be the next sort of transformational figure in American politics in the way that uh, an FDR was, in the way that a Reagan was, and maybe in the way that George Wallace was too, in the sense that he really, really sort of uh, caught the fault lines in, in American life, exploited them, and is sending us off in a new direction. Now, what that direction is, I don't know, uh, but we're certainly <laughs> going somewhere new, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, and you you give a chapter on Reagan. Reagan's not often talked about much. We think about sixty eight. We talk about 
um, Nixon and LBJ and Eugene McCarthy and Robert Kennedy. Um, but what do you think is the relevance of Nixon's? Uh, I mean, this, this this wasn't his most robust run for president. It wasn't as um, impactful as when he ran against Ford in '76, let alone when he won in 1980. Uh, what's the relevance of his attempt in 1968? Right. Uh, yeah. Part of the reason that Reagan's run in 1968 doesn't get uh, too much attention now is because it didn't get much media attention at the time. And that's because it wasn't an open run for the, for the Republican nomination until the actual convention itself. He doesn't declare as a nominee until the, 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 literally right before the convention while he's in Miami Beach. Where it's taking place. Uh, and yet. And, and how, how, how strange was that for the time for candidates to do that? Uh, it was certainly rare at the time. Not, not as rare as it would be now, of course, um, uh, given, the, you know, given the transformations that we have in terms of the importance of the party primaries. Uh, but you know, if you could if you could capture delegates, right? And at a time this was at a time uh, what was so called the old politics before before the party primaries for the most part, where candidates could you know if you could convince the the delegates at the state level who came out of the office, you know, out of the Republican Party offices and were loyal to a particular governor or a particular senator, whatever the case may be, um, then you could capture the nomination. Uh, if you as long as you could sort of throw it off the you know if no one won on the first ballot majority, then it was sort of a series of coalitions. And that, so Reagan was kind of running an underground candidacy in 68. He was touring around the country, speaking to Republican groups, ostensibly to, to fundraise for the Republican National uh, Committee, but really just you know, to, to further his own uh, candidacy. And he's running as uh, to the right of Nixon. Nixon is trying to run as the centrist, the guy trying to hold the party together. Remember in 64, four years earlier, Barry Goldwater ran a far-right campaign, and it was a disaster in terms of, uh, in terms of election. And many people were, were saying that, you know, that kind of conservatism is dead. Reagan is repackaging Goldwater's conservatism into a more sort of optimistic message, and he's resonating with a lot of those delegates, particularly those in the South, uh, who uh, really sort of embraced uh, Reagan's conservative message. Um, and so he's putting more pressure on, at the convention on Richard Nixon's chance at a first ballot nomination than the much more notable challenger to Nixon, which is Nelson Rockefeller, and Rockefeller is, of course, running from the, for the more liberal or progressive wing. And who who is the figure that keeps the conservatives in the Nixon camp and away from Reagan's late insurgency? Yeah, yeah. Sort of the the key figure there in terms of holding on for Nixon is Strom Thurmond, the senator from South Carolina, uh, subject of an excellent recent book by Joseph Crispino. Um, and you know, Thurmond is the one who, through his strategic alliance with Nixon recognizing that, you know, that Nixon has the best chance of winning the nomination of any of the, of the more conservative candidates uh, and also sort of creating a strong personal tie with Nixon. And Nixon is courting him by continually restating his conservative principles, that he's going to appoint conservative Supreme Court justices, that he's going to be strong on national defense, that he's going to uh, be slow in terms of using federal power to force the integration, racial integration of the South. These are all issues that appeal to Thurmond. And through this very strategic alliance, it's Thurmond who's going around, you know, wherever, whenever Reagan goes and speaks to a state delegation in Miami Beach during the 68 convention, Strom Thurmond seems to follow. Uh, and, and he's basically reassuring them that, that Nixon's the man. He loves Reagan, too, but Nixon's the one who can win the election. This, this is the best, the best choice for all of us. And Thurmond is such a trusted figure among uh, Southern conservative Republicans uh, that he's basically able to hold the line. You know, these delegates, they want to vote for Nixon. Their heart is, sorry, they want to vote for Reagan. Their heart is with Reagan, uh, but their heads are with Nixon. At the end of that process, uh, with uh, 
Thurman helping Nixon hold down his right flank. Uh, does that change the character of his general election campaign? Is Nixon seen as more of a hard right figure after that, or is he able to present himself to the country as more, more of a center right, uh, moderate mm-hmm. conservative? Yeah, Nixon is constantly trying to position himself in the center of the Republican Party. Um, he's, he's, you know, after 60, especially after Goldwater's campaign in 64. Nixon is the one who is very consciously and strategically trying to make sure that he's seen as both supporting the Goldwater conservatives and also the Rockefeller wing of the party. In 66, the midterm elections, he's a tireless campaigner for, for a variety of congressmen, senators, local officials. He's, he's basically building up as much political loyalty as he can. And yet, over the course of 1968, Nixon definitely seems to be moving to the right. Uh, by the general election, by the fall of 68, the theme that he's hitting on more than any other is this idea of law and order. Uh, basically uh, trying to co-opt some of the Wallace message uh, and saying, you know, we need a strong, forceful response against social protest, against radical hippies, against this anti-war movement, which is causing so much chaos, that we basically need to bring a you know, sort of a stronger sense of authority and patriotism back to the country. So Nixon seems to be tacking right, but that's also because of the country is, is starting to tack right. He, if he's trying to still position himself in the center of the party, it's because the Republicans are shifting right over the course of 68. While that was happening on the Republican side, uh, the Democrat convention was uh, famously uh, disastrous uh, and and even violent. Uh, This is in the wake of the assassination of Robert Kennedy, uh, who was the winner of the primaries, uh, and uh, the convention becomes a showdown between Humphrey and the primary runner-up, Eugene McCarthy, uh, who was running on the more uh, strenuous anti-war platform and Humphrey being LBJ's VP was seen as somewhat complicit uh, in Vietnam, at least in the eyes of some of the convention uh, delegates. Uh, uh, why was it that the party wasn't able to contain those tensions? Uh, uh, why is it they, did they spill out in, in such a dramatic way, unlike almost any other, if perhaps any, no other convention before? Um, yeah, the, what happens in Chicago in, in late August of 68 is just sort of a combination of a number of unfortunate factors for the Democratic Party and an inability to contain them and, and a lack of strong leadership to help uh, avoid such a crisis. Uh, but to really understand it, I think you, you kind of need to, to step back and think about you know how we get to the how we get to August of 1968. And of course, the Democratic Party has, all, has always had sort of a more liberal wing and a more sort of establishment wing, uh, but they are very successful coalition for the most part, dating back to the New Deal, right? And it includes uh, liberal intellectuals, uh, the working class, racial and ethnic minorities, the white South historically. Um, and Vietnam in particular uh, is starting to fracture the party more openly uh, by the late 1960s. Uh, you've got those who are openly questioning the war, uh, who are Democrats, and combined with sort of the larger social and political forces of the 60s, the civil rights movement, um, the the expansion of government responsibility through, through the Great Society, there's, you know, the rifts in the party are, are becoming more open and dramatic. Um, and then that becomes manifest in the election itself, right? When Eugene McCarthy runs in the New Hampshire primary, Lyndon Johnson is still the assumed candidate, uh, you know, the front-running candidate for the Democratic Party nomination. And uh, McCarthy's grassroots campaign, uh, less due to him than to the huge army of uh, student volunteers, uh, in that winter of 68, 
help to bring about he doesn't he doesn't win the primary but he he gains over 40 percent of the vote and that's a fairly shocking repudiation of, of a sitting president uh, running for, presumably running for re-election then bobby kennedy enters the race and kennedy is is johnson's great nemesis then johnson drops out and that leaves hubert humphrey as kind of the candidate of the establishment and that's an irony in itself because hubert humphrey has always been sort of the great liberal right he, he's he was the he was the champion of liberalism in the, in the 1950s and through the early 1960s Without Humphrey, for instance, you know, perhaps there is no Civil Rights Act of 1964. He's such an energetic senator in that regard. Vietnam becomes Hubert Humphrey's undoing. He, as, as vice president to Johnson, he's so loyal to Johnson and really kowtows to Johnson in so many ways. Humphrey's an early question. He's one of the first officials around Johnson to question the Vietnam War and the course of escalation in 1965. But the price he pays for that is that Johnson basically shuts him out of the inner, inner circle discussions about the war because he wants lo the loyalty of those around him and a consensus built around escalation in Vietnam. And then Humphrey makes sort of his choice uh, where he basically says, I'm going to support the war anyway. And he becomes in some ways the loudest cheerleader for the war, even though he's not part of that inner circle. So he becomes associated with the war and becomes the target of anti-war protest by 67 and particularly by 68 after Johnson's dropped out of the race. Uh, so... You know, the, the McCarthy supporters uh, who felt that they uh, deserved the nomination uh, after Kennedy's assassination, uh, say he had the most, most votes of those remaining uh, and spoke to the anti-war sentiments of, of the base. Uh, obviously, it's, it's not uh, fully analogous to what happened with Democrats in 2016, but you did have some similar... Um, uh, defiance from some of the Bernie Sanders supporters, uh, people charging that the process was rigged by the, by the Democratic establishment uh, and suggesting that uh, he was the better option for the general election, even though Bernie uh, came right at the end and endorsed Hillary Clinton, not all of his supporters were uh, as enthusiastic about it. Uh, uh, do you see... Um, uh, is the the divide within the party between the left and the establishment sixty eight is the, does that ring uh, true from what you see today? Absolutely, I think you know since sixty eight, the Democratic Party has been faced with a with a dilemma. Now that it is more sort of uh, centrally identified as the party of progressive policies, how do you marry those progressive policies with trying to capture the political center? not that it can't be done and there are candidates who've done it successfully and there are ways to message that but the party has never uh, but the party has constantly struggled i should say to find ways to to make that work uh and 68 is is really where you see, where much of that starts to happen uh, you mentioned the parallels between bernie sanders and eugene mccarthy right you couldn't come up with two really different personalities but in the very same but absolutely you're right and that the same way they were each kind of like the darling of the college campuses and the young uh, inter and were sort of the idea of trying to reclaim the soul of the Democratic Party uh, was inherent in both of their messages that they were the, 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 the they were the more authentically democratic uh, voice within the party and felt alienated from the establishment political process. And '68, the big difference is, of course, there are only a few states have open primaries, so to speak, where you both you run for election and you win those delegates, uh, which means that, again most of the most of the delegates are apportioned through state conventions and through party insiders and so on. Uh, that changes by 72 uh, when the Democratic Party enacts reforms for who its delegates are. Um, but the but the parallels are eerie. Yeah, certainly they're there. Do you feel in researching the race that the uh, 
did the Democratic Party act in a responsible or honorable way in giving the nomination to Humphrey, even though he didn't, I mean, he didn't really compete in the primaries so much. Uh, did they uh, do what they had to do in giving him the nomination? Or in retrospect, should they have said McCarthy did the best of who remains in the primaries and therefore he should get the nomination? No, I think in 68, I mean, those were the rules of the game. Uh, they, they saw the, the flaws with that process by 72 um, or, or before 72. And then they, they saw what happened in 68 and the discontent that it festered. But it wasn't like a, I wouldn't say it was a betrayal of the democratic process as it was understood at that time in 1968 for Humphrey to win the nomination. Even if Kennedy had not been assassinated, uh, you know, Kennedy and McCarthy together, they, 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 probably, they could have launched some kind of legitimate challenge at, at Humphrey's nomination. But once Kennedy's, but even before then, you know, was, Humphrey was still assumed to be sort of the, the man of the party and, and the, one who, the one who had the, the inside track on winning the nomination. Humphrey could have still got it even if Kennedy had not been shot. Most likely, yeah. The data, the data points that way. Um, now, if Kennedy and McCarthy had been able to forge some kind of coalition, uh, then they might have launched a real tough challenge to Humphrey. However, Kennedy and McCarthy were competing against each other in the primaries. They resented each other. Kennedy thought of, uh, I'm sorry, Kennedy and McCarthy. Uh, Kennedy thought of McCarthy as a, as a quite lazy politician and one who uh, didn't have the stuff it took to be president. McCarthy was very resentful of Kennedy for sort of his assumption that he would basically be taking over from McCarthy by entering the race later. Uh, they were both Catholic, and McCarthy thought of himself as sort of like the, the real authentic Catholic, and, and Kennedy is the one who exploited it for political purposes. Uh, and so, and so they they really distrusted each other, and and there was no sense that they would create any type of working coalition. And then after Kennedy's assassinated, McCarthy is doesn't have the sort of the chops and the leadership to really build a coalition and to and to go after those uh, Kennedy voters either. He seems really sort of um, alienated from the whole process. He's he's a he's he's this very sort of quirky and distant figure in the summer of nineteen. We're talking with uh, Aram Gaduzian here on the New Books and Politics podcast. He just wrote The Men and the Moment, The Election of 1968 and the Rise of Partisan Politics in America, published by the University of North Carolina Press. So uh, explain that subtitle a little bit. Um, because Are you arguing that there, that there was less partisanship before 68 than after? <laughs> uh, it's... You know, with that subtitle, it, to be fair, right, like partisan politics is something that goes back to practically the founding of the nation. I mean, you know, Adams and Jefferson are, are engaging in partisan politics. And you can certainly point to elections both before and after 1968 that, that sharpen um, the, the notion of partisan politics. What I would say 68 does, though, is, is it, launches the, it launches the identities of the major political parties in terms, in terms of what they look like now. Uh, that, that it helps to sharpen the, that sense of identity more than any other election. So that if you want to understand how the Democrats and, and how the Republicans in some ways really come to embody two different Americas in a lot of ways, or speaking two different languages to the American people, uh, 68 is a good place to start, uh, or at least to investigate, to think about that conversation. So uh, what happens after these two conventions? Uh, the, the war obviously uh, is unpopular. Um, but uh, does that make Nixon's election uh, preordained? Yeah, it, Nixon's election, I wouldn't call a fait accompli. It's not, it's not necessarily preordained. He's definitely the front runner heading into the general election. The big surprise for many pundits and for many journalists is the strength of Wallace's campaign. He hits his high point in September of that year. 
And this is in the aftermath of the Democratic National Convention. Increasingly, a lot of particularly white working class voters who had historically voted Democrat are gravitating toward the Wallace campaign. You know, it's assumed that uh, Wallace is going to do well in the Deep South, and of course he does. Uh, but he's also really resonating with a lot of uh, voters in the North, particularly factory workers and other white working class uh, people in the urban North, in places like Philadelphia, and places like Detroit, all around the country. Uh, and Wallace's poll numbers are creeping up as Humphrey is are creeping down. At one point, Humphrey's polling as low as 29% uh, in late September. And there are certain forces that, um, that, that give Humphrey a boost in the last six weeks of the election. He finally comes out with his own independent stance on the Vietnam War. Uh, and that helps to win back some of those peace voters heading into the general election. Meanwhile, Wallace's campaign dwindles in terms of its momentum. He has an absolutely disastrous choice in his vice president, a guy named Curtis LeMay. And uh, this is the, maybe the last election where the major American labor unions are able to exert pretty significant political influence. And they run an anti-Wallace campaign because they say, look, he's hostile to the interests of unions and really are targeting their own workers who are gravitating toward Wallace. Um, but Nixon's election, again, is not uh, preordained by any means. Even though he's the front runner, he is, he is starting to dwindle in terms of his momentum, and Humphrey is starting to surge as they get closer and closer to election day. Uh, Humphrey kind of finds his voice and, and, and finds a lot of momentum heading into the last few weeks. He's taunting Nixon for not engaging in a televised debate, calling him uh, Richard the Chicken-Hearted. Uh, and more and more, the Democratic Party seems to be the party of peace. At the same time, the Paris peace negotiations are going on. It looks like a ceasefire is coming in Vietnam. We're getting closer and closer to uh, in those negotiations. And in fact, right before the election, uh, there is some element of confusion with the peace process. Johnson announces that they, that a peace deal is uh, or that a ceasefire is imminent. And then the uh, South Vietnamese president Thieu, announces that South Vietnam will not participate in the peace talks in Paris. And that sends the American voters with some confusion heading into election. And, and as you lay out in the book, uh, Nixon was not a bystander in that process, it appears. No, no, he was not. Uh, or at least, with it, to be legally precise, the Nixon campaign was not a, a bystander in that process. Uh, what we know is that uh, Anna Cheneau, who was a woman who was a uh, Republican lobbyist, uh, part of the so-called China lobby, as it was known at the time, uh, is in contact with the South Vietnamese uh, ambassador uh, and, uh, and sort of the go-between between the, the, the Nixon campaign and South Vietnam. And she is certainly urging uh, South Vietnam to not engage in these peace talks, to uh, that you'll get a better deal under Nixon, that'll be able to hold a stronger line, uh, because they and there's a recognition that if a peace deal is struck prior to the election, then the Democrats will be seen as the party of peace, and, and voters might gravitate back to the party, which has helped to, get, to drive a lot of American prosperity in the 1960s, uh, and that voters will instead vote on pocketbook issues rather than on Vietnam. Uh, and that helps to derail the process. To what extent was Richard Nixon the person? actively involved. There's still some questions about that. Uh, John Farrell, in his recent biography of Nixon, pointed out another piece of evidence that suggests that, that, that uh, Nixon uh, had direct knowledge of the situation, but there's no uh, smoking gun, so to speak. Um, and uh, Humphrey can't control what Nixon's going to do. Um, are there things that Humphrey could have done that he didn't do? I mean, he, did, he pivoted on the war, which seemed to work for his benefit. Um, is there something else they could have done to get that? Because he only lost by, what, one point? Uh, in, in the popular vote, he lost by uh, just about one percentage point, uh, and he lost by about 100 votes in the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So uh, what is it, can, can you envision something that he should have done differently that he didn't do? Certainly. I think that from the beginning, Humphrey could have articulated his own Vietnam policy going into the Democratic National Convention. Had he done so, he probably could have diffused much of the rage and the anger that, that helped to create the public perception of the Democratic Party through the convention. If he, if he, if he had been seen as sort of a unifying figure who could bring together the uh, the, the peace and the, and the war factions of the, of, uh, of the Democratic Party. Um, but he, and he could have been seen as something else other than Lyndon Johnson's, uh, you know, uh, whipping boy, so to speak. So this theme of manhood, right, the, 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 the title of the book is The Men in the Moment. So this idea of manhood comes up, pops up again and again in my book. And I don't want it to be like sort of the, the defining theme of the 68 election, but I think it's a theme that runs through the way a lot of the, these candidates see themselves and, and the way that the public perceives their shortcomings. This is, they are right before the modern women's movement is going to really help to transform American politics. And Humphrey's kind of seen as a weak man in this in this in this regard. Uh, he's bullied by Lyndon Johnson, but he doesn't he doesn't you know his own advisors say that you know Humphrey needs to stand up and become his own man. And they use that language again and again, and it takes Humphrey too long to be seen as his own man, um, so that he's playing catch up in October of 1968, and it's too late. So just to to um, uh, end our conversation, what do you think the the main takeaway? that readers uh, should get uh, from the book and how should they uh, absorb the lessons of 68 for the politics of today? Yeah, uh, to reiterate, I think that it's, it's an election that I think can help explain how we got to where we are today, to help explain why the Democrats have become the party that they are and why the Republicans have become the party that they are. The Democrats, in terms of struggling to hold together this coalition, how to be a party that can both advocate progressive policies and capture the political center. That's their, that's their core dilemma. For the Republicans, it's been the way that they've fused sort of notions of more traditional conservatism with the populist conservatism and with the sort of the cultural fears and, and, and anxieties that are becoming so prevalent in 68 as seen through Wallace's campaign. And those are the voters they'll go after uh, by the 1970s. Uh, and what I hope I've done with the book is try to pull together a lot of a lot of the work that's been done already in terms of on all these candidates. Um, you know, they're each the subject of, of, of extensive biographies. Uh, there's a lot of work done by academic historians that help to sort of explain grassroots politics and by political scientists. And what I've really tried to do is tell the story through the characters themselves, inform it with a lot of, with lots and lots of details from the political journalism of the time, and to try to make it an immediate story. Uh, as we talked about at the beginning, each chapter revolves around one of the candidates, and it goes back and forth, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican. And the idea, I hope, is that it builds like a dramatic novel. Uh, that takes you toward election. The book is The Men in the Moment, The Election of 1968 and the Rise of Partisan Politics in America. Aram Gudzuzian, thanks for being on New Books and Politics. Bill, thanks so much for having me. I love it.